6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. Each of the posts are bronze with silver sockets. When we get to the other things, they all sit with silver sockets on the ground. Gold planks, wood covered with gold, and, and, and silver sockets. The entire thing rests on silver. It rests on Christ's blood, in effect. Everything, every detail, every number, every material, everything here points to the Messiah. As you, there's one gate, by the way. You entered only one gate. Anyone that doesn't come through that gate is a thief and a robber. The first thing you encounter is the brazen altar, the altar of sacrifice. That's the first step to sacrifice. And then the second step is to wash in the laver. And uh, then is the tabernacle proper, the naos, or the temple proper. And as we look at that more closely, it has one entrance. As you, it has uh, two rooms. If you think of 15 feet as a cube, both width and height, the first room is twice that, is two cubes big, so to speak. You go through another gate to this cubical room called the Holy of Holies. So you have the holy place and the Holy of Holies. As you enter the holy place, and by the way, the Jews could not enter this thing. The Jews didn't, the tabernacle wasn't a place they all met. No, no. You had to be a Levi to be even in that court. You had to be a priest to get into the uh, holy place. And the Holy of Holies, you had to not only be, be the high priest, you could only do it once a year and only after great ceremonial preparations on Yom Kippur. So that's part of the concept of holiness is the, is the, is the reduced access. Going through this, as you enter this first through veil, if you will. On the left side is the menorah, the seven-branch candlestick, as it's called. It's not a candlestick. It's really a lampstand. But, and on the right side, you had a table of showbread. A loaf for each of the 12 tribes changed every Shabbat. And then you had, an, well, let's go through this. That's the menorah, and we have the table of showbread. Now, the golden altar, as it's typically called, it actually wasn't really an altar. It was a, a censer, but the point is, it is associated with the Holy of Holies. That confuses many people because it wasn't in the Holy of Holies. It had to be tended to twice a day. And you couldn't attend it. If you couldn't go in there to attend it. It's associated, considered part of the Holy of Holies, but it's just outside the veil. That's what causes a lot of confusion. Inside the Holy of Holies are two things, not one. There's the Ark of the Covenant, of course, and there's also the mercy seat. All of us fall into the trap of visualizing the mercy seat as simply the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And that turns out to lead to some confusion. The mercy seat is the important, more important of the two. It's the, the Ark of the Covenant is wood covered with gold. The 
mercy seat is solid gold. It's hammered gold. More to the point, you'll discover if you study your scriptures, the mercy seat and the Ark Covenant are always mentioned separately, distinct, distinctively. The mercy seat is viewed as the place that God is sitting. When the, Holy, when the Holy Spirit, when the Shekinah comes in here and fills this temple, it is hovering between the, 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 the seat of the mercy seat or two cherubim, and they're, in my, my belief, they're always pictured incorrectly by the artists. They're always flared up wings and so forth. No, they are down, doing it, forming a seat, actually. There are some Egyptian things like this in which the two cherubim aren't, they have one to the side and one up, where the one up forms the back and the other is the side. It, it becomes a natural throne, if you will, in effect. But the mercy seat is um, uh, where the high priest comes in once a year, only once a year, offering uh, blood for his own sins and the, that of the people by sprinkling the blood between the cherubims and in front of them. Only one place does it mention that. But when you get to a description of the Millennial Temple, or in Ezekiel anyway, it speaks of the, the whole imagery at least is as if God is sitting there, sitting on the mercy seat. But the sprinkle in front is for the soles of his feet. So you, you can almost visualize him sitting there, if you will. Um, we could go on and on, but that's, that's, that's the, the, the basis of it. The Word of God was made flesh and dwelt among us. The Word is the title of Christ. Every detail in, this, in the tabernacle speaks of the Messiah. It says, I am the door. Anyone else that comes by me is a thief and a robber. The menorah, he says, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. Each one of these things has a whole element of the Gospel of John behind it. The censer, golden censer, or golden altar is sometimes called, is where it, it, the, the, the incense is idiomatically supposed to be the prayers going to heaven. It speaks of intercession. And that's his role today. Ark of the Covenant, he's our sin bearer, and he's the propitiation for our sins. So the coverings, now this whole building then, which is using these numbers, about 45 feet long, 30 feet in the holy place, another 15 for the holy holy, so it's about 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, 15 feet high, is covered with tapestries. The first thing to put on it is embroidered linen with gorgeous embroidery in gold, purple, blue, and scarlet of cherubim. Now, it's going to get covered by other things, so as beautiful as it is, you won't see it from the outside. The only people that appreciate its beauty if you're inside. Okay? Now, let's back up a little bit. You walk up to this thing and you see nothing but white linen, just as righteousness, okay? If you can enter, thanks to a suitable sacrifice and the suitable washings, you look at this strange covering and there's no beauty that you would desire it. But if you enter in, everything inside is gold, outside is brass. Everything outside is brass, speaking it's, it's ripe for judgment. Inside, what's there is gold. The walls are planks covered with gold. All the accoutrements are all gold. And uh, so it's gorgeous, but only appreciated when you're inside, if you will. After you cover this whole building, this uh, 
40 foot, 45 by 15 foot building. You cover it with the beautiful linen tapestries. Then you cover it with, a, with goat's hair. Why goat's hair? comes from Genesis 22. Uh, actually, or correction, uh, the, the, the uh, sin, uh, not uh, Yom Kippur, the uh, scapegoat and all that, the sin bearer. That you think, well, that makes it unattractive. Then you cover that with ram skin, dyed red. What ram? The ram, the substitutionary ram of Genesis 22 at the Akedah. And when, after that, you cover it with, the term is not clear whether it's badger skins or porpoise skins. But clearly it's ugly. <laughs> not, it's not good looking. And it's interesting how, you, how Isaiah speaks, of, there is no beauty that you should desire it. He has no form nor comeliness, according to Isaiah 53 and so forth. And yet, he's our sin bearer, and it's by what he's done that we have access. Now, if you take a look at this thing in another way, the outer areas where the people were, you have the inner court, and then you have the holy place, three places. There are many writers that develop these ideas as suggestive of our body, soul, and spirit. The outer, inner, and the holy place. Suggestive, we could spend a lot of time on that one. The breastplate of the high priest. There again, we have 12 stones, and each one is marked with the name of the tribe. Twelve stones for twelve tribes. And there are twelve disciples. Everything about the kingdom of God is in twelves. Excuse me. Kingdom of heaven. Everything in the kingdom of God is in seven. Seven churches, seven whatever. The kingdom of heaven, which is a subset of that, is twelve. Twelve stones. There are twelve tribes. There's twelve disciples that are going to rule on the twelve, rule over the twelve tribes. And, uh, and so on. So... As you look at these stones, the first one uh, and the last one is a sardius and a jasper, uh, and, uh, and it's from Reuben to Benjamin, from the first to the last. Behold a son, the son of my right hand. And we go on and on about all that. Well, anyway, that's all by way of warm-up into chapter 9, verse 1. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. He's speaking of the old covenant, the Old Testament covenant. There were ordinances and a worldly, physical, man-made sanctuary. And so many people consider the law from the standpoint of the Ten Commandments, but the epistle of the Hebrews approaches the law from the viewpoint of its place of worship and its priesthood. So we're to, the, the old law isn't just the Ten Commandments, it's the whole package. This puts an emphasis on the settling of sins, and the writer's going to point out that the law never really settled the sin question. So setting aside commandments this and commandments that, the issue is, what are you going to do about sin? The law can only show you its existence. It can't do anything about it. That's why these are so different. It's going to make the point, especially in chapter 10, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. What a blow to the Jew. I thought that's what the whole Old Testament's all about. No, there are memorials in advance celebrating the sacrifice that will take away the sins. Everybody gets upset when they find out in the millennium there's going to be sacrifices again. I thought Christ had already died once and for all. He did. But the sacrifices after the fact aren't any different than sacrifices before the fact. They're simply memorials of the fact. But that's another whole study. 
Verse 2, there was a tabernacle, and there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick or lampstand, and the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. Now the word candlestick is actually lukina in the, luknia in the uh, Greek. It's a lampstand, or the, the Hebrew term is menorah. And the table, that's a showbread, table of showbread, and, which is called the sanctuary. Notice there are only a few things here. There's a menorah, menorah, the, the seven branch lampstand. There's a table of showbread. Only two items are listed here. There's a third item, but it's going to be associated not with this first section, but with the Holy, Holy of Holies. Many people get confused by that. After the second veil, see the first veil gets you into the holy place. The second veil, the tabernacle which is called holiest of all, or the holy of holies. That's the second one he's calling it here. And the second veil separated the holy place from the holy of holies. The second veil was the veil in the temple that was torn from top to bottom when Jesus died. Okay? Now, this, it's, the, it's the second place that has the golden censer. It's actually outside of it, but it's what it's associated with. It has the golden censer, the Ark of Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubims of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. <laughs> I wonder what that means. That means he's not clear about it or he just doesn't have time right now, whichever. But the, uh, let's talk a little bit about this golden censer because that causes a lot of confusion. There are... Ark of the Covenant, of course, but the golden censer, it's just outside, and there's the mercy seat. And uh, the word in the Greek for the golden censer is thumayesteron. It's a utensil for burning incense. And the Greek text and also the Vulgate and the Syriac use that term. They do not use the word altar, but censer, because it's not, it's not an altar where there's blood sacrifices. Yes, there are. it's burning there, but it's burning incense, so it's really a censer. Anyway. Uh, this is what it's generally rendered like in, in, uh, by the Temple Institute and, and people who choose to do that. I've stayed away from visualizing some of these things because many of the visualizations in the models are wrong. So rather than spend time on that, I thought we'd just keep moving here. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant and its contents. We, the golden pot of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the two tables of the, uh, the Ten Commandments, the tables of the covenant. Well, it's interesting because... We have some disparities about this, but this is what's associated with the Ark of Covenant. And, of course, the mercy seat overshadowed all this with the two cherubim. All right. There's nothing in the Ark of Solomon's temple save two tables of stone of the law put in it. That caused a lot of confusion. Because here in the New Testament, we still have reference to these other things that are confusing. The expression that there was nothing therein save these two tables suggests that formerly there had been other things mentioned by both the rabbis and also by Paul. The pot of manna, a memorial of God's providential care during the wilderness wanderings, and the rod of Aaron, now a memorial of the priesthood. It's very possible that these things were attached to the ark in terms of its being associated with it, just like the book of the law was put in the side of the ark. And also the golden jewels that were given by the Philistines weren't put in the ark, they're put alongside in the, in the cart with them. And that may explain that they're associated with it, but they weren't preserved by the time you get to, Sol to, to Herod, uh, you know, Solomon's temple. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was made of wood covered with gold. And we understand from the Ethiopian uh, reports that it's starting to deteriorate because it's, 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 it's old wood just covered with gold. The mercy seat, on the other hand, is made of hammered gold. 
And God is mentioned a half a dozen times in the Old Testament as he that dwelleth between the cherubims. And what it's referring to, it, it visualizes God as dwelling between these two cherubims on the mercy seat. The Holy of Holies is defined in some passages as the location of the mercy seat. It's almost like the Ark of the Covenant is, is uh, incidental. There are, there are some of us that suspect that the mercy seat may be the very thing that Christ will rule from in the millennium. It may, it may be the primary thing that the Ethiopians are, are waiting for the day to deliver. But that's again, you can check that out in some other studies. Down to verse 6. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. Every day, twice a day, the priest had to enter the holy place and burn incense, among other things. Every day, continually, constantly serving. Every day, twice a day, the priest had to tend the menorah, the seven-branch candlestick required handling. Weekly, the showbread had to be changed. The Twelve loaves, one for each tribe, changed every Shabbat. See, the emphasis here is on repetition all the way through. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, generation after generation. It's repetition. The same thing over and over again, the same thing took place, all of these things. Now, in the second of these two places of the tabernacle, went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, and by the way, the word there means a basin of blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. Himself first, because he's a sinner, the, the priest is, offered for himself and then for the errors, sins of the people. The emphasis here all the way through, is on a very limited access to God. Only the high priest, only alone. Only once a year on Yom Kippur. And only with a basin of blood was he allowed in there. Very, very detailed specifications. The ritual of the tabernacle never brought the people into the presence of God. The high priest alone went into the Holy of Holies. You see the emphasis here? That's what the writer is trying to get across is the difference with our high priest. The Holy Ghost thus signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. In other words, even in the old days, you could figure out that it wasn't complete yet, which was a figure or an allegory or an analogy it was a figure for the time then present in the which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. In other words, going through all this rigmarole, all the gifts and all the sacrifices didn't make the person perfect. Certainly not in his conscience. All this was not yet manifest. It was a figure for the time then present. Now, uh, the, the word for figure is, is like a parabola. It's where we get the word parabola from. A placing of one thing by the side of another, a juxtaposition as ships in a battle, like side by side. A comparing, a comparison of one thing with another, a likeness or more precisely a similitude. 
which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. See, the author's intent is not to speak of these things point by point individually. He's simply highlighting a contrast between the old and new. That's one reason I resisted the temptation to get into too much detail and all this, because he's really trying to just give you the broad picture to realize all this was intended to be replaced. That's his point. Cardinal Lawrence's. He's not passing judgment on the, uh, on the uh, old system. It's external only, and that's why it was temporary, because it was external only, fleshly. Now, the word reformation, diorthosis, it's making straight or correct to make right. It's going to be all restored in its proper condition. This is the only use of this word in the entire New Testament. Okay, let's summarize the sanctuary. It was on earth. The old one was on earth. A worldly sanctuary made of earthly things, material things. It was but a shadow of things to come. It never was the reality. It at best was just a shadow, a picture of the real one that's in heaven. It was inaccessible to the people. You would have been stopped at the first entrance. You would have needed a sacrifice there, or you couldn't have gone any further, which the priest served for you. Today, we are a priesthood of believers, and each one of us has access to God. Staggering. That is one of the great privileges we have because Christ has rent that veil in two at the, on the cross. It was all temporary. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to keep the way open for eternity. It was ineffective changing the hearts of the people. The earthly sanctuary had little to do with changing people's lives. But today you can come to Christ and He can change your life. He can enable you to worship God in spirit and in truth and to make Him a reality in your own life. That's the big difference. You can never serve Him until you have worshipped Him. And most people have no idea how to worship. We need to find that out. None do you understand that. Now, the contrasts continue. The next contrast, we had the better priesthood in chapter 7, the better covenant in chapter 8, the better sanctuary in chapter 9, first 10 verses. Now, we're going to go to the better sacrifice. The old priesthood was based on animal blood. It only provided a temporary atonement. Atoning the sins did not deal with them. It just covered them temporarily. Maybe don't realize that's what the word really means. The word kafir in the Hebrew means to cover, to cover. The new priesthood is based on the Messiah's blood, which provides for an eternal redemption. The old just looked for the, to the new for fulfillment. Verse 11, But Christ being come and a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us, once and for all. Not made with hands. See, all this, tabernacle, temple, all made with hands. Not of this building. Now, it's, uh, it, uh, by the way, the word there for building is katissus, which actually word is, speaks of the whole creation. Not of this creation. It's heaven. By his own blood, he entered in once. Now, he's contrasting this with the five offerings of Leviticus 1 through 7 and Yom Kippur, Leviticus 16. No, he entered in once. Took care of all of those. 
In these two verses, verse 11 and 12 of Hebrews 9, there are three features concerning Messiah's entrance to heaven. It was through his own blood, it was once for all, and resulted in his obtaining eternal redemption. Once and for all. Then he continues, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of the heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the appearing of the flesh. These were the three basic things of the legal. The blood of bulls and goats. That's what cleansed the, They were used for ceremonial uncleanness of the priests. The blood, of, the blood of bulls were for the priests, the blood of goats for the people. That was the concept, bulls and goats. The ashes of the red heifer sprinkling the unclean. The ashes of the red heifer were used for cleansing a corpse uncleanness. Someone who touched a dead body was considered ceremonially unclean, and there was a procedure by which the ashes of the red heifer mixed with water would be sprinkled. That's all ceremonial ritual stuff. The sprinkling of the water is for the unclean waters of separation. This is all Numbers 19. This is a, just a broad brush summary of Numbers 19. Now here we have some rabbinic logic. I'm indebted to Arnold Fruchtenbaum pointing out this is Karl Vekomer. It's a kind of rabbinical argument from the lesser to the greater. If animal blood could do all this, how much more could the Messiah's blood do? Is the argument. If animal blood through an earthly ritual can cleanse the flesh, how much more can the blood of Jesus cleanse? Obviously, you know, many orders of magnitude more pure and so forth. The means of cleansing was the blood of Christ. The basis of cleansing was the voluntary death of Jesus. It was without spot or blemish since there was no moral failure on his part. He had no sin. There's no moral spot. All the previous Levitical priests and high priests had sin. Jesus had none. Peter makes the same point, by the way. The object of all this was to purge the conscience from dead works of the Levitical system. Dead works and the Levitical system are equivalent in this whole discussion. The object is to purge the conscience from the dead works, the Levitical system, which are now dead because they have come to an end as far as God is concerned. They're going to literally come to an end in 38, day, uh, 38 years when the temple burns to the ground. The goal of Jesus' death was for the believers to serve the living God, and they're not to return to the dead works, but to serve the living God. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.